How are you guys doing tonight? Good to be here? Yes. Spencer's excited. This is good. Um, so tonight, um, I want to begin by going back into a story, something that I would say had happened to me, but it's actually something that I did a couple weeks ago. Um, so I'm on vacation a few weeks ago. Family goes down with my wife's family. She has two older brothers, uh, two parents, wonderful people, uh, their families and all that. So we go down to Branson. Any of you guys like Branson, Missouri? Yes. Okay. It's like Jerusalem put smack dab in the middle of the United States. Pretty, pretty awesome little place. Um, so we have a great time. We're there all week. It's awesome. And then we uh, hop into the car. And anytime you're on a road trip, especially with multiple other cars, any little thing that you do to change the plan is detrimental to the whole, right? So if it's a bathroom break, then everybody's got to stop. And if you have a bathroom break, especially with kids like all of our cars did, you needed like a playbook or something to be able to get in and get out in an effective way and get back on the road and stay, uh, you know, with your mission as your objective and all that stuff. So we leave Branson, and just a couple miles outside of town, there's a gas station that we go back to the same place every year. On the way out, we always stop there. We call it the, the uh, most beautiful gas station in the United States. This has got to be not like the building itself, but the scenery behind it looks like this is like a gas station from heaven. Like you would get gas and then, you know, keep going on to heaven, but this is like leading to better things. Pretty awesome place to go. So we always stop there. We park. There's four cars. Everybody's getting gas. Everybody's kids start going in to use the potty, and it's, it's chaotic and hectic, and there's all this coordination going on. So I pump some gas, and I think to myself, well, I'm just going to go in. And I'm going to get a snack. I'm going to get uh, a cup of coffee. It's like a five-hour drive. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get, you know, amped up here for the trip ahead. So I go in. I'm looking around at some stuff. I go over to the coffee stuff, pour my awesome gas station little coffee. And uh, I look around for a bit. And then I get out and get out to the car. And uh, as we're pulling off, and two cars have already left in front of us, so it's kind of no turning back now, I look over as we're leaving the parking lot, and I look at my wife, and I say, I forgot to pay for my coffee. And then I look around and she's like, what? And she said, I, I said, I just stole my coffee from the gas station. And she, her eyes are wide open. She's like, are you serious? I said, yeah, I think I meant to pay for it. Like I, I had it in my hand. And then I started walking toward the checkout deal. And then for whatever reason, I just did a beeline and just walked straight out the door. I don't know why I did that. I never do that. You know, why did that happen? And then it became doubly convicting because then I think to myself, <clears throat> the next sermon I'm going to preach involves the commandment, you shall not steal. <laughs> All right? Go figure the timing of that, right? So it, it got my mind thinking. It was, it was kind of a, a joke that day. I knew it was going to be kind of funny for me thinking about it leading up to this. The fact that I'm entering into the night already down a point, you know, against me. Um, but it makes me think about two things into this. You know, I'm, I'm breaking the commandment to not steal by taking a $1.50 cup of coffee. Uh, tonight we're going to get into much more beyond that, but I think um, for me there's two questions that I initially have going into this, and I think we're going to get at the heart of this as we go through the text, as we talk about what it means, what Jesus would say it means. There's two things I want to wrestle with, and it's this. First, what hope is there when we find ourselves to be commandment breakers, uh, whether a cup of coffee or, or much worse? And second thing is, what was God's overall purpose and design? Why did he give these in the first place? What was his grander scheme that he had in mind giving these commandments to the Israelites 
uh, what, was his, what was his hope for them? What, why did he want them to do this? So tonight we're going to get into all that, but uh, if you can, turn into your Bibles to Exodus 20. We're going to be in four verses tonight. Um, going to be a fun time. So far, over the past couple of weeks, we've been in the Ten Commandments, and for the past few months, we've been in Exodus telling the story about this Israelite people, the family of Abraham, that the Lord sought out, that the Lord redeemed from slavery in Egypt, where they were there for 400 years. And then now he's bringing them um, through the Sinai wilderness, eventually into the promised land, Canaan. They're in the middle of nowhere at Mount Sinai, right? And then Moses goes up, he gets the, he gets the law written on the, on the tablets and craziness and all that. So this is where we enter the story. God is giving them their constitution. He's giving them their guidelines for how they're going to have to live as a people, not just now at Mount Sinai, but when they get to their land that he's giving them. Like he said, a land flowing with milk and honey. So it's in that story that we enter in. And uh, I'm going to go ahead and read all four of these verses, and then we'll start at the first one. So starting at verse 13 through 16, it says, You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal, unfortunately for me. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Okay, so four big commandments. They're, they're like a bunch of little jabs, I feel like, where it's like, bam, you shall not do this, and bam, you shall, shall not do that. Um, we're going to begin at verse 13 of the first one tonight for us. It's, you shall not murder. Um, the crazy thing about this whole passage is that all four of these verses in Hebrew is about 11 words, and almost half those words are no. So it's actually fairly simple to walk through it and to kind of break it down to see where we're at. So in this commandment, I just want to look at this word for murder. Uh, how many of you guys have sat around in your dorm rooms or, or been wherever you are wrestling with a, a command like this to say, well, what counts as murder? Sometime after this, the Lord is going to lead Israel through battle multiple times and many occasions, and people will die as a result of that. Is that forbidden here? Um, what about self-defense? You play those hypothetical games where all these scenarios come up. What constitutes murder? Well, this, this word for murder in Hebrew is called ratzah. Can you say ratzah with me? Ratzah, there you go. Um, I just wanted you to say it because it sounds pretty cool saying it. So tattoo, ratzah, get it. But you have to live up to it because it's murder, so it's kind of pretty, pretty hardcore. Ratzah means taking, um, at minimum, to take a life without proper authorization and for selfish reasons. There's a whole lot of other things that you can speculate that this might have to do with in certain situations uh, that it comes up so far in the whole Old Testament, Genesis through now. This word uh, has not been used until now. So there's something crazy going on here. God says, you shall not murder. Um, at minimum, what we know, even, even looking at all the other times in which the Lord leads his people through battles and things happen, we're, we're led to believe that since God is the author of life, he is the only one that has the true authority of when it's right to take a life and when it's not. So you have this, the, these people that have this commandment given to them, you shall not murder. Now many of you walking in here, and especially hearing that, may have already thought to yourself, well, I haven't murdered anybody, so I can kind of sit back a little bit until the next one comes up. Then I'll figure out if I'm, if I'm indicted of that or not. You know, I haven't taken anybody's life, so I'm good to go. Well, I would beg to differ because Jesus, a couple hundred years later, says this in Matthew 5, 21 and 22. He says, You have heard that it was said of, to, uh, to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. 
Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Okay? Some of you guys who called somebody a fool tonight all of a sudden just got shaken in your boots because you're wondering if this is me or not. No, what Jesus is saying here is that murder is much, much deeper than just taking a life in the physical sense. That murder actually has something to do also with the seeds of hatred that can be inside our hearts, uh, begrudging somebody else to the point of hating them and wishing that they didn't exist. Or at least at minimum thinking, my life would be better if they didn't exist. So going back to Jesus' definition of this, which, which isn't going against what the Lord initially gave in Exodus 20, he's taking that and he's taking it deeper, uh, to a deeper place saying, that's the commandment, but this is actually the intention of the law. Right? It's, not, it's not just about not trying to murder people. It's about something much more. What do we do with the people uh, in our lives, strangers, friends, enemies, and the like? Um, I sit back at this and look at Jesus' definition and so many um, different ways, in so many different ways, each one of these commandments tonight causes me to sit back and say, who isn't guilty of this? You know, there's not a person in the room tonight who isn't guilty of doing what Jesus said is uh, liable to murderous judgment. You're guilty of murder if you hate your brother in this way. Who isn't guilty of this? Now, I say all this to set up what we've been able to do so far. Every uh, week, week in and week out, there's been a story, a testimony of sorts uh, from somebody within our church body, a lot family leader, so somebody who we stand behind and say, this person is with us, they serve with us, they love the Lord. Um, And these people each week have told their story. And they've given us a picture of what it's been like to be sinned against maybe in a particular way or to commit this sin. Um, So tonight... Um, specifically dealing with this commandment, you shall not murder. I want to point you guys up to the screen here. My name is Connie Williams. I was not raised in a Christian home. uh, And in fact, my teenage years with my father were pretty terrible. He was a very angry man and often out of control. Uh, So when I was 17, I ran away from home to live with my boyfriend and we later moved to San Francisco. Uh, Shortly after we moved there, I discovered that I was pregnant, and when I told him, he uh, said that he didn't think if I didn't have an abortion that our relationship could continue. And so out of fear and pressure, and honestly even selfishness, I decided to have an abortion. I remember that day leaving the abortion clinic, and even though I wasn't a Christian, I remember feeling afterwards that I had done something horrible that day. The world will tell you that abortion is a woman's choice, her right over her own body, but God has a different word for it, and it's murder. About four years later, I surrendered my life to Jesus Christ and received forgiveness, and the healing process began. But that healing process took many years. When we sin and we repent, God forgives us immediately. But sometimes the complications and the consequences of that sin continue for our whole lifetime. I can never tell someone that I have four children without remembering that I have a fifth child in heaven put there by my own hand. For over 40 years, I put on the mask and was unable to share parts of my life. I was afraid that if I let people see who I really had been, that they wouldn't accept me, that they would judge me. 
And so coming to Matthias has been so freeing and healing for me because here we're encouraged to take off the mask. Sin is not condoned, but we can live transparent lives with each other without fear. My encouragement and hope tonight in sharing my story is that we'll all see that we are sinners in need of a Savior, that we have a loving and merciful and forgiving Father who longs to bring us to Himself and restore us. Don't wait. If you're a woman who's had an abortion, I encourage you to run to the Savior who forgives and restores and heals, and then take off the mask and share your story. If you're a woman tonight who's in the same place that I was many years ago, please don't be pressured and, and make a decision out of fear to have an abortion. Instead, run to the one who can forgive and heal and restore, and he will equip you and strengthen you for the road ahead. Then find a mature believer in the church who can walk alongside you down that road to encourage you, to pray for you, and if need be, to financially support you. Tonight, don't be afraid to take off the mask. I don't know if you guys, um, I don't know if you understand how much bravery and courage it takes to tell a story like that, um, but I want to thank Connie for, for making herself known and uh, for sharing your story. Um, unfortunately, it's become notorious that a church would be the last place that someone would like to share a story like that. And um, my hope tonight, especially as we get through this more and more, is that we would recognize that we're called to be a place that receives people in every bit of struggling that, um, that they're experiencing. And so um, one verse, and there's only really one phrase that keeps coming to mind when I think about a story like that, um, and Connie and I have celebrated it um, all throughout today is James 4, 6, but he gives more grace. He gives more grace. When it's not deserved, he gives more grace. When you think that it's hopeless, he gives more grace. Um, so thank you very much, Connie, for sharing um, your story. I want to let you know, too, specifically, this is an invitation to any females that are in a position where um, maybe you're tempted with that, maybe you're, you're pregnant right now. Other women in our church um, have had this issue. It's a part of their story. So I want to let you know that you're not the only one. If, if you're in a place where you've had an abortion in the past, or that's a temptation that's coming up, uh, you're pregnant now and somebody, you, yourself or a boyfriend or somebody, is trying to encourage you to get an abortion, if, if you want to talk to somebody, Connie, who is in that video, is going to be in this back four-year area after the sermon. So when the music starts back up, if you want somebody to talk to you, somebody to pray with, somebody to take the mask off for, um, to make yourself known, she's going to be back there, and so will uh, another female leader. So I want to encourage specifically any women who are in that situation to, uh, to seek that out. Um, we're going to keep going here in verse 14. So 13 said, you shall not murder. And verse 14 says, you shall not commit adultery. So it doesn't really get any lighter, okay? You shall not commit adultery. So adultery, um, from a biblical standpoint, is coming from an understanding that marriage was uh, given by God as a covenant to, um, to unite together, to be fruitful, to multiply. Uh, Adam and Eve were called to fill the earth with little image bearers of God just like them. And adultery is the breaking of that covenant by one of the marital partners um, entering into sexual uh, intercourse with somebody else who's not of the marriage covenant. Now, it's crazy to me when you think about how evil this is. 
And just like Connie said, before she was even a Christian, she knew that a piece of what she had done was terribly wrong. Um, In other cultures that had nothing to do with the Lord, except for the fact that they were just made by God, Egyptians, Mesopotamians, Canaanites, in this time frame that was was, uh, the same time as the Exodus, all three of the biggest cultures around them, around the Israelites, called adultery the great sin. They called it the great sin, right? They don't even know the Lord, and they're calling it the great sin because they're recognizing that there's something absolutely terrible about this. Um, I think it's awesome that they call that the great sin, and they don't call murder the great sin. It begins to tell you how heinous and how evil and wicked this, this whole thing is. Um, it is the great sin, and I know it personally. Some of you guys, a couple years ago when I had shared my story in another sermon, um, heard pieces of this, but just to catch all you guys up, uh, I was married. And that is confusing to some of you because I am married. Well, I am married now, but I was married before to somebody else. And uh, somebody out of college, somebody who was a believer just like me, who uh, professed to be a believer to follow Jesus. And um, basically, the long story short of it, we had a great image on the outside of what it looked like to be successful as Christians. But on the inside, within the confines of our own covenant of marriage, uh, we were spiritually empty, we were dry. And we became way too close with a couple in our neighborhood and basically bonded over everything that, that we shouldn't have been about in the first place, really. And so after a year or so of partying, of hanging out, of just, um, of just being completely distracted from the Lord and his ways, I get a phone call. And I remember this phone call. I remember this 15-minute span like it happened yesterday. It is, it is forever seared into my memory because it's so evil. I get a phone call on the way home. I'm driving on 70, going out past uh, almost to Mid-Rivers. And it's my ex-wife, wife at the time. She says, um, hey, what are you doing? I said, I'm, I'm driving home. What are you doing? She never called me in the afternoon like this. Uh, she said, uh, well, I'm sitting down here by the river just thinking. And all of a sudden, my, my, my heartbeat starts going faster. I start breathing heavier. I know something isn't quite right about that. We, we weren't people to just, like, go down by the river and think. Um, although I, I kind of am now. I don't know how that's happened, but... I wasn't then, so I'm. I'm. So I ask her, and I'm, all of a sudden the worry's starting to come up, and I say, "Are you down there by yourself?" And and she said, "No, actually, Jeff's here." And so then all of a sudden, like the heart beats a little faster, and I'm I'm realizing there's more and more reason probably to start panicking. And I said, "Why is Jeff there?" And she said, "Because we've been having an affair for a couple months, and I'm pregnant, and I'm almost certain that the child's not your child." Now, by this time, I've, I've like, sputtered over to pull over on the off-ramp of Mid-Rivers Mall Drive, and I'm just sitting there, and, you know, we work out a time to, to meet up and to talk, and, um, and I'm, just, I'm just sitting there, like, in shock. There's no words to begin to describe to you what that process was like, what it was like to try to go to counseling, to try to make something work, but for somebody to, to decide that that was it and say, I'm, 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 I'm not going to do this. I, I can't tell you what it was like um, the day that their baby was born. I can't tell you what it was like to hear when they were married. I can't tell you what it was like to have to defend yourself in divorce court, to defend myself for things that somebody else had done against me. There's no words to, to, to adequately tell you what that whole experience was like except for to say that it was the great sin. 
It was the great sin against me, and it was the great sin against the Lord. Now, a pretty amazing step that has happened since the last time I would have shared that a couple years ago is that a few months ago this year, I actually had to call her. We had a financial uh, matter we had to discuss together uh, over some stuff that we had owned before. And so I called her. This is the first time I had spoken to her since um, probably five years. Since then, Sarah and I had been married. Um, been married for four and a half years almost and have two amazing little boys. And so I, it's one of those conversations where I'm, I'm already nervous because I don't know how this is going to go. I don't know what direction she's gone. This is a couple years that have gone by since then. And just like I can't really fully describe to you how evil it was to go through all that, I also can't even try to begin to describe to you what it felt like to hear her say things like, we've gone a long way since then, and Jeff and I are really sorry for everything that we did to you and Lori. And I know that I was crazy in so many ways, and I know that I was rebelling against God in so many ways. But we've really tried to move on, and the Lord, um, the Lord is what we've turned back to. And so we're trying to, even though this started in a broken way, we're trying to raise our family uh, to follow Jesus. There are no words to begin to even to try to describe what that feeling was like. So here's the deal. Because I'm, the, the, the other side of this, the end of the story, is that I didn't end up with too shabby of a family either, right? If you guys have seen my wife, beautiful, amazing, uh, extremely kind, amazing, servant-hearted woman. Like I said, we have two boys, Reed and Blaine, and they're the cutest boys in this room. And if you say they're not, then we can go fight in the back after we're done. <laughs> the fact that, that, that my story ended up so good doesn't take away from the fact that it took such evil and pain to get through to that point. It's in that place of, of all of that falling apart that I moved back to St. Charles um, matter of fact, that I moved in with my best friend who's here tonight who came and he took me in. He allowed me to stay at his house, right? Eat his food and all that good stuff. Um, lived there for three years. Um, the, fact that, the fact that my whole story ended up the way it did and the fact that God sovereignly orchestrated things and gave me things I didn't deserve doesn't mean that that was any less evil. Um, but I go back to the phrase, but he gives more grace. I wake up every single morning and I know that my life doesn't need to be like this. I don't deserve it to be like this. But he gives more grace. Jesus takes this beyond the level uh, of the letter of the law on the tablets in Matthew 5, 27 and 28 and calls adultery this. He said, you have, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Again, I back away and I look at this. I look at Jesus defining this and I say, who isn't guilty of this? Can we try to even begin to imagine what a world would look like where billboards didn't cause people to commit adultery, where, where there was no pornography, no, no, no things that drove people away from what the Lord designed for them. When marriages, when, when husbands and wives had full trust of each other, when we, when we didn't have anything that we regretted from our past, what would the world look like if there was no such thing um, as this commandment being broken? It's almost too good to even try to even think about it. I almost explode trying to think about how good it could be, but I can't even understand it. Who isn't guilty? It's crazy. 
But in a crazy way, in addition to the fact that Jesus, um, sinless Jesus, never murdered, never hated a brother or a sister in his heart, it's an amazing thing to celebrate that our Savior never committed adultery in his heart, that he never lusted after uh, another woman um, with evil intent. He never, he never was adulterous against his father, in contrast to how many times you and I are. Absolutely crazy. Um, but as fun as all this has been for the first two, we're going to go on to the third one. So uh, verse 15, as we keep going, it says this, You shall not steal. Uh, show of hands, any kleptomaniacs in the room that every time you go to a restaurant you have to steal something or, you know, I guess you guys don't want to. That's like, the, that's the safe one to admit to. It's when you say, yeah, I steal salsa bowls. And by the way, I steal clothes from department stores or something. Then it gets serious all of a sudden. You know, then, then all of a sudden it becomes, I'm the bad guy, right? It's not just a cute little thing. Stealing is so ingrained in our culture too. It's absolutely crazy. But to steal, I think, assumes a couple things. To steal assumes that, um, assumes that, that a society exists where people own things. So if things are owned, then those things can be stolen and taken away. What's mine uh, can be taken away from me by you because you selfishly want to steal it. It assumes also that things uh, can be taken for selfish and unloving motives. You don't steal things from people because you love them, okay? Uh, you steal things from people because you value your pleasure more than them having their stuff. So my, what I want is more important than your thing. It also assumes this. It also assumes a lack of being full, like filled up. It amazes me to, to look at situations around the world where poor adults and children will steal food to survive. That's, that's stealing to fill something up, okay? Um, but there's also people all over the world who are wealthy and have more than enough means and steal from people, right, to be filled up in so many ways. Um, it's so crazy to even try to think about a culture in which things aren't stolen. And for this Israelite community, for these people that the Lord is bringing on to their promised land, he's trying to paint a picture of saying, um, may the place that you dwell in be known for how generous you are for each other. May it be known as a place where a guy can leave his donkey tied up outside the grocery store, if they had grocery stores in Israel back in those days, and the next guy can walk by and not steal it. How different of a community would it be where our stuff um, wouldn't be taken from us? But it's not just um, cups of coffee and, and money and things like that. Um, although I would start off like this. Here's things that we steal. Uh, first would be money. Now, um, I'm assuming we don't have any bank robbers in the room. Uh, you guys may have stolen money in different contexts. I'm assuming it probably has happened. We steal money literally, but we also steal money figuratively. I don't own a business, and I don't know what it's like to pay somebody to do something, and then they steal from me by not doing it. But we have some business owners who come to our church and are a part of our covenant member family who know what it's like to pay people for something, and then they get stolen from by not being given what they were promised to give in exchange for those wages. So we steal money both literally and figuratively. Uh, we steal objects, like however many of you guys need to steal the salsa thing from El Magway. We steal that sometimes, okay? We can steal, people steal cars all the time. I mean, you can go endless on the list of what people steal uh, object-wise. Third thing is we steal conversation. Any, any of you guys ever know what it's like to, to try to be talking to somebody 
And no matter where you want to go, because you know that this, this conversation needs to go somewhere, the other person keeps hijacking it like a terrorist and running away from it the other way, right? Or how many of you guys are in small groups like Lot Families? And, and there's, there's this scripture that's being brought across or this point that's being put out there. And no matter how hard the leader's trying to guide it that way, there's always the one person who wants to, to steal the conversation and take it to where they want to go. What they want is selfishly more important than what is better for the group. So we can steal conversation. We can steal time. When two people are married, they exchange vows and they commit to give one another their lives. Now, if I'm thinking about this right, a life is a summation of a whole bunch of time. Now, I can't give my wife all of my time, and she can't give me all of hers, but we've committed to giving each other time to live life together. Many of you guys involve a story and would have been brought up last week when Mark was preaching about honoring your father and mother of maybe a father or a mother who was never around. They stole time from you. Or maybe, you know, you, a man who's, who's working and trying to provide for your family, maybe in trying to provide for your family, you're actually stealing time from them by working for things that you don't need. So we steal time in those ways. Um, how about this last thing here? Uh, we steal each other's focus on the Lord. So you have in relationships, maybe you have uh, like a best friend and you're trying to spur each other on toward Jesus, but you seem to care more about your best friend thinking more about you than about Jesus. Or a boyfriend-girlfriend relationship where you're dating and you, and you really want that person to notice you when you really get honest about it, you don't care what they think about Jesus. You just want to be the one that they think about all the time. Or even walking in here on a Wednesday night. And I know that we can harp on this all the time because the need is so much there. And I'm not saying this in condemnation. I'm saying this actually to try to offer a way to freedom that uh, men and women, the worst thing that we can do coming into a Wednesday night is to try to orchestrate ourselves in such a way where people look at us and notice us more than King Jesus. So the opportunity that we have, by the way we dress, by the way we act, by everything that is about us, is to stop stealing uh, the focus that other people should be giving to the Lord. Give that back to them and say, hey, I, I'm great. It's, it's good to be here. It's good to see you. But what about the Lord? You know what I'm saying? How, how could you even challenge each other, like this week, to out-deflect each other? Attention back onto the Lord with people that you care about the most. So we steal a whole lot of things. We're a whole big bunch of uh, thieving kleptos in one way or another, and it's absolutely crazy, but it's not hopeless. I want to encourage you by reading this. Ephesians 4.28, Paul says this, Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. So you see the progression. A thief is not necessarily a celebrated person, right? For this bad guy, this thief... Uh, Paul says that this person is supposed to receive dignity by being given the opportunity to actually work hard, to earn something, to earn his keep, and then to take that keep, to be filled up by it, and then to actually in turn have a change of heart and give to others who have need. The thief becomes a giver. It's absolutely unbelievable. The commandment is you shall not steal. And I pose this to you. What does a community look like where stealing isn't, isn't even a temptation? where somebody who has need, before they even get a chance to, to even try to steal something, is actually beaten off to the past by somebody else saying, hey, I'd love to actually help you in this way. I'd love to provide for you. I, I'd love to listen to you. I'd love to befriend you. 
What does a society look like where stealing isn't even a part of the picture because needs are being filled up, like in Acts 4, where they're giving out of need, as, out, of, out of the abundance of their possessions, as anybody uh, had need to. Absolutely a crazy thing. You shall not steal. Super convicting for those of you who have eight Almagwe salsa trays in your dorm room, um, but uh, absolutely encouraging thinking about what the Lord designs and desires for his people, this people that he's made this covenant with. So we move on to the last verse here, verse 16, and it says this, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. This is most definitely talking about a court situation. So God has brought the people together. He's going to bring them into the land eventually. They're going to get there. And as a society, you need to have a judicial system. You need to have a way to plead your case, to have justice administered, to have rights celebrated and wrongs made right. And so the Lord says he doesn't actually put this on judges just yet. He tells every single person, do not bear false witness against your neighbor. And your neighbor, by the way, is somebody who's a co-member of the covenant with you. But I love how it's not designated uh, whether they're a friend or an enemy. So don't bear false witness against anybody. Speak the truth. Uh, testify to what really uh, happened, even if it incriminates you. And I think about how different our culture would be, how different our existence would be, if we didn't have uh, things like DNA testing, lie detectors, cameras, Nancy Grace on TV, giving commentary to everything that happens in a courtroom, it's unbelievable. It doesn't even seem like real life. On that Branson trip that I mentioned uh, earlier, for the past like three years, we've watched somehow every big national trial was consecutively on while we were down there. So, you know, we're, we're vacationing in Branson and watching like the Trayvon thing or, or, or Casey Anthony or all these other crazy things. And at the end of the day, it wouldn't even be dramatic if everybody just fessed up and, and said what really happened. The reality is, is that somebody's telling the truth, somebody's lying, maybe neither one of them are telling the truth, but what is being put out there is salacious, super dramatic, and absolutely unhealthy. And the Lord desires something much bigger than that for his people. So, after all these things, I think we have an opportunity to wrap this up in a few ways. We've seen this, first of all, with, um, with how the letter of the law can come off. You know, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not bear false witness. There's the way that that sounds and the direct interpretation of it, and then there's the Jesus interpretation of it, uh, which is altogether not different but deeper. And so I want you to look at this. The first slide up here is this. On the left here, this is a self-righteous view of God's law. So a Pharisee or somebody who's trying to justify themselves by how good they are at keeping God's law, they see it as this. There's me on the bottom, and I put me because we're probably all in this category in one way or another. There's me, and I'm trying to do everything I can to... Um, to reach up to the law, to get up to it. I'm actually asking questions like, well, can I do this and it not be adultery? Can I, can I get this far and not actually murder them? You know, can I, uh, how far do I have to go to actually tell the truth? We're asking all these questions to justify ourselves, to say that we haven't broken the commandments, when in fact, by Jesus' definition, we have. So there's the self-righteous view of God's law, unable to fulfill it. And on the right, there's Jesus' view of God's law still sees it absolutely as a positive, foundationally wonderful thing, but he sees the law as this. For Jesus, the law is a floor, something to base 
living on God's character, but it's never about just fulfilling the law in the letter of the law itself. So it's never about just not killing people. It's about doing something else instead of killing people. It's never about not stealing things. It's about giving things, actually. It's never about uh, trying to not commit adultery. It's about honoring what the Lord desires for marriage. So the self-righteous person sees the law as a ceiling, as something that we're going to strive to get up to even though we're absolutely unable to reach it on our own power. And Jesus uh, views God's law as, um, as, as a floor, something that, that, that we aim after, but that's never the end in and of itself. It's always enabling us to live in a better way. So it makes me think of Luke 18, the rich young ruler. Luke 18, uh, a man comes to Jesus, and he says, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And then Jesus lists off the commandments. Matter of fact, he lists off these four commandments, plus honoring your father and mother. And the rich young man says, all these I have kept. And then Jesus, being as smart and witty and amazing as Jesus is, Jesus says, okay, well, go, go sell your goods to the poor and then come back. And Scripture says that the young man went away sad. And then his response is, then who can be saved? <laughs> He's actually realizing the self-righteous thing, like, who can actually reach that law? Um, and Jesus answers right in this point, what is impossible with man is possible with God. God will enable you to fulfill the law in a different way, in a way altogether different. This man did not know that he was looking at the law fulfiller in the face. He's the king that fulfills the law on our behalf. And I'll say this, the law is only condemning if you don't follow the one that it points to, the one who, who fulfilled it and leads us together into a new and better way. We just have to follow Jesus who did this for us. So this brings me back to, to looking at these things, these commandments. If these are lived out well, and it's not just doing all the negative stuff, like not doing stuff, but actually embodying law, the law by, by doing what the law would produce uh, on the flip side, not just not murdering, but, but what should we do instead of murdering what does this covenant community look like? What is this covenant community, this group of people, this family that God has, has sealed a covenant with, with, uh, with blood? With, he's, he's agreed to keep up his end if they keep up their end. What should this actually look like in their community? And the first way is this. Dealing with this whole issue of, of not committing murder is this. That it's a covenant community that sees every life is valuable. So... It's not just about not killing people. It's, it's about valuing all people. It's about seeing um, what God sees, that, that there's nothing that we can do to actually earn more value than another person, that we're not more valuable because we make more money, that we're not more valuable because we're more physically attractive by certain standards, that we're not less valuable because we're handicapped in some way, that we're not less valuable because... Um, because we're not gifted in the same ways that the world says is amazing and wonderful. The reality is, is that every single human being that's ever been born on the face of the planet, believer or non-believer, is made in God's image if Genesis 1 and 2 are right, which means that every single person's life has value. And no one of us is worth more than the other. We should cherish and value each other's lives, especially the lives, man, I, I, coming in here, Wondering and praying for people who are cast off in the corners. Their lives are as valuable as anybody else sitting amidst the crowd. So 
Second point here, related to this whole issue of not committing adultery. Do not commit adultery. The second thing says, um, it's a covenant community that protects one another and celebrates healthy sexuality. Okay, sexuality, big hot topic. Uh, Obviously, so many of us, unfortunately, have been, and I wouldn't even say this is a bad teaching. I agree with this because there's a right and a wrong time for sex. Obviously, this is kind of part of what we're getting to. So many of us have been told that the stove is on, don't touch the stove, you'll get burned, that we've neglected the ability to actually realize the fact that there's something amazing cooking on that stove, right? It's not just about not touching the stove. It's about waiting till the proper time to enjoy what's actually simmering, which is a pretty darn amazing thing. Again, I go back to it, even something like that, and say, who in here is not guilty, right, of messing that one up? But then I go back to the phrase, but he gives more grace. But he gives more grace. The third point, dealing back with this whole issue that you shall not steal, is this. The, uh, what does God covenant community look like? It's, uh, it's that it works hard and gives generously, especially to the needs of the vulnerable. Absolutely essential. That, that we would be a covenant people, that that maybe as best as Israel uh, tried to be, they were unable to be, but with the power of the Holy Spirit that we can begin to try to be in a way that, that is drawn toward God, that we can be a community that, that almost like obliterates all stealing. A community where people are provided for, a community where nobody gets left behind, a community where needs are brought to light and people aren't ashamed to bring needs out to light because other people are waiting with joy to provide for them, to say, let me put my arm around you. Let me help you in this way or that way. That we would be a community who works hard and gives generously. And the last one, corresponding to this command to not bear false witness against your neighbor, uh, God's covenant community would be one that speaks truth and stands for justice. That celebrates righteousness, that celebrates uh, good, and at the same time stands up against things um, that are evil that stands up against people who are oppressed, that stands up against wrong being uh, perpetuated, that stands for the justice that reflects God's character. Now, here's the thing. I, on Monday, I don't know what you guys read in your spare time, but on Monday I found myself reading the Code of Hammurabi, which is not exactly the most fun thing to read as a bathroom reader, but I'm sitting here reading this code because it's, it's Egypt's law code. When the Israelites would have been sent out of Egypt, this would have been the law of the land of Egypt for 400 years that they would have experienced. So as I'm driving home, I'm wrestling with this question. What makes this law, God's law, any different from the other law? Because if you have some of these same things, murder is dealt with in there in some way. Adultery is hated in there. Theft is dealt with pretty severely in there, right? What makes this law different? And then... I was reminded that for the first couple weeks going through this, every commandment had something to do with worshiping the one true God. And what also makes this different is the grace of Exodus 20, verse 2, the grace of Exodus 19, verses 4 through 6, where God said, I have drawn you up out of Egypt. I've, I've brought you to myself. I bore you on eagles' wings. I am the Lord that you are doing this for. I would go so far as to say as this, even if you could hold up these four commandments, no murder, no adultery, no theft, uh, no bearing false witness, even if you could hold those up, but you were missing the first commandments 
that had everything to do with worship and allegiance of God the Father, then you might as well not be keeping them at all. Because that's what all of this is brought upon. This is what all of this is founded upon. So I look back at this list, look at these four things, and I'm wrestling with, you know, what, what does this community look like? What does this group of people, what's, what's God's intention for Israel, and what can we discern that is his character, maybe his intention for us, if these things actually were, were fruit that was born out of our lives? And it's almost too good to think to be true, but, but let me ask you this. If this, along with the worship of God and the honoring of our parents, which have already been covered, if this was actually lived out, how different is that from heaven? The ultimate, you know, the, 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 the place that would represent, you know, being with the Lord in true fellowship, celebrating the Lord, the, the absence of sin, what would this look like that would be different in any way from heaven? I think it's better to illustrate it uh, using a movie example. I'm a, I'm a movie person, and I have no idea how this plays out. I, have no, I didn't even try to make it work out like this, but it seems to me that apart from Scripture, the Bible, that most of life's uh, true, wise lessons uh, can be discerned from either Jurassic Park or the Field of Dreams. And I have no idea how that happens, okay? Dinosaurs and baseball, and I mean, that's, that's pretty cool by itself right there. But, but in the Field of Dreams... Um, and, and this is right about the point where I start crying every time, the 180th time I've seen this movie still. Um, at the end of the Field of Dreams, Kevin Costner's built the field, you know, Shoeless Joe comes with all the players, and you know, they're playing baseball, and it's crazy, and they, you know, they're going to keep the farm and all this stuff. And, and then he looks over, and then he sees his younger father, Ghost, taking this catcher stuff off, and he looks up at him, and good-looking man John Kinsella looks back at Ray Kinsella, and all of a sudden you have this moment where you recognize, where he says, oh my God, it's my father. Now you have Ray Kinsella walk up, and all of a sudden this conversation gets sparked up. And John Kinsella, the father ghost guy in younger form, I know it gets kind of confusing, but bear with me in this if you haven't seen it. If you haven't seen it, please just go watch it tonight. It's, you'll learn a lot about life, so go ahead. Um, John Kinsella, coming from Lord knows how long, not playing baseball, living in a ghostly existence, you know, he, he comes to experience this place for the first time, this magical field, the field of dreams, um, this, this place where, you know, to, in his words, like all your dreams come true kind of thing. It's almost too good to be true. He looks at Ray and he says to him, can I ask you a question? And what does he say? Anybody? Is this heaven? I mean, think about that. Based on what he's experienced, he knows that he's never experienced anything like it before. And he knows that in so many ways, it probably is too good to be true. So when he asks, is this heaven, one of the most classic one-liners uh, responses in all of you know, movie history, Ray Kinsella, awesome Kevin Costner, looks back at him and says, so coolly, no, it's Iowa. Which, Iowa is not really my point here. But here's, here, here, here is my point. I'm going to suggest to you this, that this law, this this character of God that's been communicated through this covenant is a piece, incomplete, yes, but still a vital step toward God bringing his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. You remember Jesus praying that in the Lord's Prayer. What if that prayer was literal? God, please bring your kingdom the, 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 the way it looks like when you rule and reign. Please bring that from, from the place where you are onto, onto earth as it is in heaven. God's people are supposed to be the place 
where heaven and earth overlap. Take that with you and think about that. The place where heaven and earth overlap. This place between two worlds. Where true love, humanity, community can be experienced in such a way that when others come into our midst and into your midst within the sake of a church body, within the sake of relationships that you have with other believers, friendships, uh, work, family, whatever it looks like, that, that when other people experience the church in some way, that they would say, is this heaven? When they're not turned away for their sin, when they're received and offered grace because he gives more grace, when they say, is this heaven? Then we can say, no, but the kingdom's coming. But the kingdom's coming, and let us tell you about King Jesus. Because by his sinless life, by his obedient law-keeping to its fullest extent, fully fulfilled life, he lived that in, in pleasure and obedience to God. And then he offered himself as the sacrifice, as the ransom for all of our law-breaking, and then he rose again to defeat sin and death. And my friends, on Easter morning, God's new project of cosmic redemption took its final turn. The kingdom is coming. And we have a king, and his name is Jesus. So now there's so many opportunities to respond in here. There's so many opportunities to come back and to, to say, yes, even on this small list, I am so guilty all over the place. Some of you are guilty in some forms of this today going in here, that you can look at the king and sing his praises with assurance, knowing that the blood of Jesus covers you, that he cleanses you from all unrighteousness, that he makes you clean, that he washes you to be pure like snow. You're going to have an opportunity to worship knowing that, believing that, that that really could be true. And some of you, have never, ever, ever confessed the name of King Jesus. Some of you have allowed yourself to, to be raised up in a world where sin and death reign, and, and you've just come to think that it should be like this. And I'm here to encourage you by saying that it's not supposed to be like this. That the Lord has further plans for this whole thing. That one day there will be no sin and death. One day that every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. And in that day... Sin will no longer reign. King Jesus will reign. But the good news is, is that King, Je uh, King Jesus rules and reigns right now. So our opportunity between two worlds in this overlap of heaven and earth is to confess with faith and allegiance, believing that in spite of what things look like around us, we know that there's a greater king. We know that there's a greater king who's ushering in a new and better way. So I want to encourage any of you, especially um, if you've never done that in, in a personal way, if you've never confessed the name of Jesus, if, if you've never said, I want to follow him all the days of my life, if you've been following all these other fake kings, I want to encourage you that there will be leaders in the back corner, back in that corner, who will be willing to receive you, uh, to talk, and to baptize you. Ultimately, that is our hope, to see more and more people added into this kingdom. That's an opportunity there for any of you who desire to take advantage of that. And I want to reiterate, especially uh, to the females, if any of you are touched in some way by Connie's story or abortion has crossed your path, I want to reiterate that her and another female leader will be in the back starting right now. And if you have felt shame your whole life and are looking for somebody to take the mask off with, 
that she will be back there ready and willing to walk with you. Church, let's worship.